Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, Pastor Josh points out that if you can understand these eight verses, that you can understand the Bible. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Justified. chapter 3 verses 21 to 28 I have been looking forward to this passage for I mean years building up to this right here this is when the clouds part okay and the sun begins to shine in this section that we've been looking at as we've been seeing so much of sin and our guilt before God now comes the time where we're shown how we are made right with him and all of the hope we have how has it been accomplished How has God done it? It's right here. So let's read the text and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, let's bow together and let's ask for God's help. Oh Lord, this is um, just one of the most powerful passages in all of the amazing scriptures that you've given us. I want to simply ask, oh God, for the help, the strength, the power, the light, that we would be able to understand it rightly. There's a lot going on here, so we need help in our minds, but more than that. God, we need help from you to be able to see how it changes everything to see how it impacts us. Lord, to have the ability to believe and in believing, to have that cleansed conscience, to know that we're accepted, that we're forgiven, that your love has been set on us. So God, please give help. And every single soul, every person, we're all in a different place spiritually. Lord, all of those who have come to Christ and they have already received this forgiveness, God, I pray that you help them to feel the fact that they are forgiven and that this to give a great sense of joy and hope that carries us through. But Lord, I I do pray that any in the room that have not yet come to Christ, that maybe have been just assuming they are already okay, or maybe who have rejected what you have said, God, I pray that this would be the day that they come to understand the truth and see their need of you, their need of forgiveness of sins, their need for a righteousness that they've not earned, but that is granted from you. So God, I pray that 
this day would be a day that some come to faith for the first time and that their eternity has changed. So please, God, protect this service. Protect everything that needs to happen for us to intently think. Help me to uh, be useful and helpful and, and not mess this up and not say unhelpful things, but only what's right, true, and helpful. Bless all of us, oh God, to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is receptive. So please bless. We ask this through Christ. Amen. As Christian is journeying towards the city of heaven in Pilgrim's Progress, the man evangelist had told him that he needed to pass through a narrow gate and receive a scroll. And the moment when Christian passed through that narrow gate in this allegorical story symbolized what Jesus had told to us to strive to enter through the narrow gate. This symbolizes what the Bible teaches of conversion, the combination of two parts of salvation. First, what Jesus talked about, that, that new birth that must be worked by God, that awakening, that seeing for the first time, and then that help by the Holy Spirit then to be aided in belief and repentance. And when a soul turns and trusts in Christ for that first time, they are then made right with God. The biblical term for that made right with God is justification, to say justified. It's a legal term. We still use it today. We're going to talk more about it today and even into next week, Lord willing. But Christian in Pilgrim's Progress there was justified at the moment he passed through the narrow gate and then continued on that difficult road leading to the city of heaven. But there came a moment as he was walking that two men climbed over a wall to the side of him. They climbed over the wall and they began to walk on this path. And Christian looked at them in a curious kind of way. And he asked them, why did you not pass through the narrow gate? That's what the book the king gave us told us to do. Well, the two men chuckled a smug kind of laugh and said something to the effect of, it doesn't matter how you get there, so long as you do. And what Bunyan meant to demonstrate in that is that many souls want a pathway of religion, want something to do with connection to Jesus, want to walk along that Christian-ish kind of life, but despise and reject what the Bible says whenever it speaks to every soul on earth and says, you must be saved despise and reject what the Bible teaches about justification. Now, this was extremely prevalent in Bunyan's day, 400-ish years ago in England, where it was part of the culture there that just everybody went to church, even if you hated it. Everybody went to church. It was just the socially expected thing to do, but we still see it today. There are hordes and hordes of churches who teach, teach much of the morals of the Bible, really hammer down hard on that call to love one another and, and the golden rule and many of these kinds of commands that as Christians we are to do, but they despise and avoid everything that the Bible says about that call that you must be saved. You must be made into a Christian. In fact, it's one of the things that actually divides 
many of the churches in existence. Actually, that word evangelical, if you've heard that before, originally what the word meant was differentiating those churches that believe the Bible's gospel and that call to repent and believe in order to be forgiven of your sins. Now, that term has kind of largely lost its meaning, but that's where it began, differentiating churches that believe this call that Jesus speaks. But friends, the most weighty instruction of the Bible is not about morals. The most urgent message that God has communicated to mankind is not about how you live as a Christian. The most serious message you need is about how you become a Christian in the first place. The heart of the Bible is how Christ is the answer for how sinners can be made, made at one with God again how souls can be reconciled back to God. I mean, if you want to know what Christianity is, if you're new to this whole studying the Bible thing, what what is the basic message? There are all kinds of groups that are constantly sort of communicating that the basic message of Christianity is how we are to treat one another. The golden rule, love one another. But the way that the Bible would respond is, that is an incredibly important command. It really is a big deal. And in fact, the Bible would show that anyone, no matter what they say with their lips or how much they attend church, if they would not live out those kinds of instructions, it is evidence of the fact that internally they have never been brought to Christ. But that's not what Christianity is. That's what Christians do. But it's not what makes a Christian. Christianity is the gospel, the message that God in scripture calls the gospel, that core message. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah promised of old. Jesus is the savior sent from heaven, the son of God, who is the fulfillment of all of the thousands of prophecies promised from of old and has come to bring souls to be made right with God. That's what Christianity is. And you become a Christian by being attached to Christ, receiving the person of Christ into yourself by faith. And all of this is made possible by the work of Christ at the cross and the resurrection. That's the gospel. And if you believe this gospel, you turn and trust in Christ, you will made right with God. But if you refuse him, then that means to say it as Hebrews says it, if we refuse so great a salvation, how will we escape? You are still in your sins. The gospel is that core message. And Romans 3, 21 to 28, these eight verses right here, this is perhaps the clearest and deepest explanation in the Bible about how what Jesus has done on the cross, a big word for that, a word the Bible uses would be the word atonement, how the atonement of Jesus brings us to him. So it's one thing for us to say, we even say this to eight-year-olds in the congregation, Jesus died for sins. You can have eternal life by trusting in Jesus because he died for our sins. But to go deeper than that, to kind of open up the hood and see how it works, what does it mean that Jesus died for sinners? 
What does it mean that he has made a, a substitutionary sacrifice? What is all that? That is what the book of Romans opens up to us in 21 to 28. It's perhaps the clearest place in the Bible that opens up to show the how of these kinds of things right here. Some scholars, including Dr. Jim Oreck says, the rest of the Bible is commentary on these eight verses. In fact, the next eight chapters that we're going to study after this are simply explanation on what is going on in this overview of the atonement of the gospel. That's big. If you understand these eight verses, you understand the main message of the gospel. In our study through Romans, we've reached a turning point here. Now, we're still going to talk about sin. There's no way to not talk about it. This is a cursed world. We are sinful people. So there will always be that talk that has to come with it. But chapters one through three, we have had a bit of that condemning tone. Some people don't like that. At the end of the day, you have to say, this is God speaking. What are you going to do? Object with God? God has had a bit of a condemning kind of tone because we have broken his law. We have sinned against him. We do stand guilty before him. But what happens starting at this point is the tone begins to change. The tone changes from the condemnation we deserve to here is the hope of the Christian. To all who come and believe, God is accepting. God has set his love. God is embracing. God has given you a thousand graces, a world to come. Rejoice in that. And this is the how it has come. So the tone changes because the relationship with God changes through the gospel. So here's my one goal for today. I want to just walk us through the text so that we all understand the flow of the text and what's happening here. Um, normally, as we come together, there's kind of an outline and we'll say something like, we'll look at two points today or three points or whatever. As I read through this passage, I counted 41 phrases or word couplets that all need some kind of explanation. So if there are points today, there are 41 of them. So keep track. Uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to just kind of flow through the text in an overview, overview kind of fashion. Next week, we'll do the whole outline thing and see what's the main point and how the text breaks down. But today, I just want to make sure that by the time we leave here, we all understand the message of what's being said. Because really, whenever you look at this, some of the phrases are hard. There are words used here we don't use on a regular basis. You probably have not used the word propitiation in a little while. We're going to look at these words, the phrases, give explanation. And then there's also just the fact that it's a whole lot of information compiled together. So we're just going to try to work through the text so that we understand what's being said here. So let's read through it carefully. And after some of the phrases, I'm just going to stop and give some comment as we work our way through this this morning. So we, get, we begin in verse 21 with this phrase right here, but now apart from the law. We've spent the last numerous weeks looking at the law of God. We've seen the Bible show us that all souls, everyone, has the law of God written on our hearts. We all know morality. We're all under the law of God. And we've also seen the Bible show us that we have all broken commandments. Of course, some more than others. Of course, we like to compare ourselves to one another and sometimes justify ourselves by thinking that my life is better than this person's. But what scripture shows is all have broken commandments. 
So we're all under the law, but we've all broken the law. Therefore, by the law of God, we all stand guilty. So let me just very clearly tell you what this means. If you are relying on yourself to get to heaven, if you are relying on your goodness, your accumulation of good works, a good heart, you, you think that at the end of the day, I will be in heaven because I am a good person. What you need to see is that the Bible shows you an opposite truth. You are not fit for heaven. You are not good enough to come into the presence of the God who is holy, holy, holy. He's not just kind of holy. He is absolutely upright and he demands absolute uprightness for anyone who's going to come near him. And so even the greatest soul who ever lived in history other than Jesus himself, like say John the Baptist, was not good enough for heaven by himself. John the Baptist needed forgiveness of his sins and needed a way to be right with God. What the Bible is doing in the gospel is revealing to us another way. You will not make it to heaven by your righteousness. You need righteousness coming from a different place. And this text is showing us here. So continue to read through. So apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. All right, so what does that mean? The righteousness of God. When the Bible says that God is righteous, what it's stating is that God is morally upright. God is not evil. God is not shady. God does not do impure things. Everything about him is completely upright. But then there's also this that the Bible shows. And it's kind of an obvious point if you think about it. But the Bible does go to great lengths to, to make this point right here. If God is righteous, if God is upright, then he does not allow angels or men who are wicked to have fellowship with him and get his greatest blessings. And that greatest blessing that exists is to get to live forever in fellowship with God, in his presence, in the place where God's awesomeness makes everything else awesome. It's kind of another way of just saying heaven and the new creation to come. Wherever God is, it's awesome. Wherever God is, flowers bloom, angels sing, food flows, Joy is flowing all over. The greatest blessing that exists is to live eternally in fellowship with God in the place of his glory. Well, if you think about it, if, if a king gathered all the rapscallions and warlords of the land and he brought them into his banquet hall and he feasted with them, slapped them on the back and laughed alongside of them and gave his approval by bringing them into his blessings. That's not right. We would question the morality of the king who did this. Why are you rewarding the wicked? Well, listen, friends, God does not reward the wicked. And one of the hard truths of the Bible that oftentimes is rejected, but that scripture just clearly shows in so many places is that you and I are amongst those unclean ones who are not fit to get to enter his banquet hall and feast with him. God is not going to give his great blessings to those who are not upright. God is king. God is judge. God is going to give to each what they are owed. 
the wicked will receive punishment. The righteous ones will be rewarded. And friends, all of that is to say, if you are not completely morally upright, then you cannot come and be right with the God who is completely morally upright. He does not reward those who are not upright. And the Bible shows that we are unclean. But what this passage is then showing us is that there is a righteousness. There is an uprightness that God is willing to give. So it's not a righteousness that you earn, but it is one that God will grant by grace, meaning there is a way that God gives you the promise that one day you will be made totally upright, but right now you will be counted as if you were forgiven of your sins. There is a way in which for the one who has trusted in Christ, that your sins will be one day completely removed, completely cleansed. But right now, God will count you as though you already are cleansed and forgiven because of what Christ has accomplished. And so this passage is saying it has been manifested. It's being revealed. It's being demonstrated. It's being shown how you can have this. So the next phrase, right, so let's keep reading. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been shown. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, this seems like a strange phrase, but here's what it means. Meaning that even in the Old Testament, that's a way that the, the Old Testament scriptures were often referred to, the law and the prophets. Even in the Old Testament, this was promised. Friends, Christianity is not new. It's not a new religion. It is the fulfillment of the only and original, true religion. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ did not just one day get created out of nowhere as you can track many of the false religions of the world and see the day of their birth. No, Christianity, the gospel, is the fulfillment of all that God has been revealing since the very first book of the Bible, since Genesis. One of the points that will be made in chapter four is that this justification by faith, this forgiveness of sins through faith has been being revealed since even the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Listen to Isaiah 53, 11 from the Old Testament. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The point being made here is not only, not only that Jesus is referenced, pointed to, prophecies made about in the Old Testament, we point those out all the time, several hundred places where Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament before he ever came to this earth. But what this passage is specifically saying is more than that that specifically the message of justification by faith has been being told to us even from the Old Testament, even from the very first book of the Bible. Well, let's continue on. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This right standing with God, this righteousness that is available to come to you, how do you get it? Do you pay for it? If you give enough offerings, is that whenever you finally like get right with God, he grants forgiveness of sins after so long of time of giving money? Is that how it comes? Or what about that accumulation of good works? 
Is it one of these things where you try to be really good and one day you sort of reach this platform of growth and once you get there, bam, then God gives you this standing of being right with him. Is that how it comes? Is it a merit system? Is it like a classroom where maybe at the beginning of a year, a teacher tells the students, if you get so many good behavior points, you get this prize at the end. What's it like? How does it come? Well, man most naturally believes that he is righteous on his own. But probably the second most popular belief is something like that classroom merit system. If I store up enough good works, if I give enough religious devotion, I attend church and go through these motions enough, I'll finally come to this point where I've got enough points with God that then he says, okay, now you are good. But what God is telling us here is that it does not come by any of those ways of works, of earning or buying. It comes in one moment, the moment of turning to Christ in trust, in faith. Friends, every other religion of the world, they all have this in common. They all teach the acquiring of merit as the grounds of, of reaching whatever that highest blessing is. They all teach self-salvation, some works-based whatever at the end of the day. Hinduism teaches that a good life results in favorable karma and reincarnation to a better life in the next one. Islam teaches that religious devotion results in acquiring heaven in your own 70 virgins. Tribal religions teach that sacrifices to the gods appease them and bring us into favor with them so that we get a better life here or some version of heaven. And then, this is one that the Bible talks about as well, the false gospels under the name of Christianity. And there are many of them. These groups out there that teach that some sort of merit system that by religious devotion and good works, one day you, you store up enough that they imagine some scale in heaven and your, your merit has to somehow outweigh your sin and something like this. Some of these even teach that up in heaven, there is, this is completely made up, completely invented, nowhere even hinted in scripture. Somewhere up in heaven, there is a treasury of merit and good news for you, it's available for purchase. You give so much money, God takes some of that merit and dumps it onto the scale to outweigh these things for you. The gospel, the message of Jesus turns all of it on its head. The gospel comes to the thief on the cross and offers him eternal life now. The gospel comes to the thief on the cross and gives him a hope. I mean, you think about that, man. By a merit system, that guy has zero hope. He's headed for hell. It doesn't matter how good his heart would become in that moment. There's not enough time to earn up points with God. The gospel speaks to that man and says, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel comes to those like we see come to Jesus. We see in the gospels, prostitutes come to Jesus and in one instant receive complete forgiveness of their sins and pardon. The gospel offers total forgiveness and the whole package of eternal life acceptance by God in one moment, the complete thing. And then the Christian goes on to live good works, 
but not in order to get justified, but because he is justified. Good works flow out of the, the love, just like a husband and wife. They serve one another not so that they can one day get married. They're already married. They serve one another out of love, and they find that the great joy comes in that kind of life. The Christian receiving justification and the heart turn that God has worked by a miracle internally gets inspired by the love and gratitude to God and begins to live a life of obedience. And one of the things that we know from human nature, being inspired results in a greater life than what being guilted into something will ever do. And the Christian finds the great joy in that lifestyle. And so let me, let me restate this because so much hinges on this. You are not righteous by your own merit. Isaiah says our best righteousness is as filthy rags. But there is a righteousness, a right standing with God that he is willing to give to you. And it has been made possible by the work of Christ. Jesus was righteous in his life as a man. God is willing to make his righteousness, Jesus's righteous law-keeping, be counted as yours by faith. How is this gift given? By faith, by faith. You see it over and over in this passage, again and again repeated, by faith, by faith, by faith. Where you sit right now, you might have walked into this room this morning separated from God. You can leave here justified. In the next 10 seconds, you could be forgiven of sins and receive eternal life where you sit right now. If in the silence of your heart, God hears every prayer you utter even in your soul. If even where you sit right now, you in your heart turn and trust embrace Christ by faith and call out to him. You can be justified even where you sit. This is the hope of the gospel, that it is offered to you in a moment as a gift. Now, there's going to be a whole lot more that needs to be explained with this, and that's why there's this passage and the next eight chapters that are going to come after this. Like, for instance, Romans 6 is going to explain that the Christian who has been made right with God can he use that as an excuse to just go sin? No, that's what fake Christians do. True Christians live out this life of persevering in the faith. So much more to be seen, but this is it being shown to us. Well, let's continue on in verse 22 there. So it says, this is for all who believe. There's an emphasis there on the word all. For there is no distinction. The primary point here is that this is what is offered to every people group of the earth. Not just to the Jews who were the ones who were given special promises and covenants from God. And some of them were uh, wrong in thinking in that first century, believing they were the only ones that God cared about, the only ones who could have this. No, 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 the gospel preaches and says that it is for every people group. Other passages go on to explain, to show this is for male and female, slave and free, rich and poor. There is no just one group of the earth that this message belongs to. This message is going out into all the earth. That's why Jesus gave the great commission to, for his people to go and spread this message. And we see in the book of Revelation, it works. 
in looking at the future, gathered around the throne of God, a multitude so large no one could count, souls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Verse 23, continuing really with this thought, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That one verse is kind of just a summary of what we've seen in the previous three chapters there, that it's not just one people group or another that needs forgiveness. It is every soul and every people group. Very helpful verse to remember in your own personal explanation of the gospel. So if all have sinned and fall short, if all do not have this righteousness from God, verse 24, then here's how it comes. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Now this word justified, we've mentioned it already and Lord willing the plan next Sunday is to come back and just specifically study righteousness and justification together. But this word justified is is the most important word in this passage. For now, let me just give a brief explanation for it. Uh, You may jot down a definition of some kind. Justification is simply to be declared not guilty. It is to be exonerated. It is to be found innocent. If you were brought to trial and you were evaluated, all the evidence was brought forward. If you are found guilty, then that means you receive punishment. But if you are justified, then what does that mean? It means you go free. You're declared innocent. There's an important connection to make here. It is being declared right. You're found to be on the right side of the law and not the wrong side. If a police officer has a suspect pull a gun on them and that police officer fires, then he would be evaluated and through the conclusion, they would then call that that shooting was justified, meaning he had not broken the law. He had kept the law. He was not guilty. He was found innocent in regards to the law. Well, justification before God is being counted as in the right being counted as innocent. But here's the dilemma. This is, this is the great dilemma of the gospel. I'm not righteous. I am not morally upright. So how is it okay for God to count me as though I am upright? That is where the work of Christ's atonement comes in. That his life is counted as a substitute that there is a a double substitution that on the cross, Jesus took my sins onto himself and he died as though he had committed my sins and every other of his people who come to him. But then we get counted with his righteousness. There is this crediting that goes both ways. How does all of that work? Well, hang in there. That's what we're going to be studying and what we're going to be seeing. But there's a huge emphasis here that this justification is given, not earned. It's a gift and not something that is paid for. Let me just further emphasize this by looking at a couple other passages. In chapter four, find verse three there. This is gonna be a major point in chapter four when the whole subject of chapter four is that this is by faith and really hammering down that it is. Look at verse three. For what does the scripture say? There's a quote from the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification, counted as if he were right. Now look what verse four explains. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see this being emphasized there. If you work for it, then it's God paying you. And that's not how this can come. It can only come as a gift, and that is by grace, and it's received by faith. Jump to chapter 9 with me for a moment. Romans 9, find verse 30. In talking about this whole dilemma of uh, salvation coming to the nations of the earth, Gentiles and Jews, some of this is explained. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, that means non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The rest of the New Testament just piles on more and more passages. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is by grace. You have been saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. I just really need you to catch this. This isn't just the particular opinion of this church. Like, don't come away thinking like, well, I guess that's the Baptist thing, you know? Like all these different groups, they think these different ways. Baptists, they think it comes by faith. But, you know, who knows? No, this is the word of God. This is not what people think about the Bible. This is what the Bible says about the Bible. Hundreds of verses from scripture all showing entire chapters devoted to beating this into our heads for if there's any resistance. It's by faith as a gift by grace. And even back in chapter three here, look at verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is God speaking. In the book of John alone, you'll see Jesus say this more than 20 times. Eternal life comes by faith. This is what it hinges upon. We'll continue in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. When Christ was on the cross, You've been hearing since you were a kid that Jesus died for sins. And a child can be helped. Helped to see and grasp some sort of understanding of what that means. But as we grow, we need to see more fully what it is, how it is that Jesus' death pays for sins. And to do that, friends, God had previously set these things up, explained the whole concept of this in the Old Testament. That's why God gave the Old Testament first in order to prepare the way for us to understand Jesus. The Old Testament sacrificial system. As you read some of those books that a lot of times want to be skipped, like the book of Leviticus, explaining these sacrifices of atonement. Every single one of them in some way combined together to help us understand what Christ accomplished on the cross. Like the slaying of the Passover lamb. As that blood would be spread over the doorpost and that angel of death from God came to the land of Egypt but passed over the houses that had the blood smeared in trust of God and the wrath of God did not come to that house. Or the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where a lamb would be slain, its blood caught in a basin. 
the high priest would then walk into that innermost room, the Holy of Holies, and then he would sprinkle the blood onto that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing that Holy of Holies was meant to symbolize the throne room of God in heaven and sprinkling this blood at the feet of God to appease the wrath of God. All of this, that God would count a substitute instead of the people. This is all atonement. Sin deserves a life to be taken, blood to be spilled. This is a truth that so many resist. Before God, every sin is a capital offense. The Bible teaches every sin deserves death. We deserve the punishment of God for eternity for our sins. But God has made a way for sin to be dealt with, sin to be taken care of. That's atonement. Atonement is man being reconciled back to God because the sin problem is taken care of. We can be at one with God, atonement, at one restored to God. And this is what Jesus accomplished in his work of redemption. There's another big word. Redemption means to be set free. If you're in slavery, you get redeemed. It means you go free. If your marriage is broken, the redemption, God redeeming your marriage means that the two of you are brought out of the brokenness and into sweet harmony of marriage. Redemption is this setting free. For us who are trapped in our sins and the guilt that we deserve, redemption is being set free from that death, set free from that wrath. And then continuing in verse 25, what is probably the most difficult phrase of the whole section, verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. All right, what, is, what does that mean? Well, when I told you a moment ago about the day of atonement, how the blood of the lamb appeased the wrath of God, that right there, that idea of appeasement through blood is propitiation. In fact, in, in the original language, the word for propitiation and mercy seat, that place on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, those two words share the same root word. So that whole sprinkling of blood, that is propitiation, the satisfying of the anger and the wrath of God for sins. Jesus died as a propitiation. The book of Hebrews tells us that unlike the lamb slain on earth, which were just a copy, a picture, a shadow of what was to come, Jesus has entered the very throne room of God in heaven, in that real holy of holies, bringing his own blood as an offering, giving the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus died as a propitiation. But the text says more than that, doesn't it? The text says that God the Father ordained for all of this to happen, Jesus' death on the cross, Publicly, publicly, meaning this wasn't done in the spiritual world somewhere where men couldn't see it. This also wasn't done in some obscure place back in the woods where no one saw it. God ordained that Jesus would be crucified publicly. And then there's even more than that. Jesus' death on the cross is the single most widely distributed piece of information of history. You cannot get more public than that. There is no viral video, new scandal, event of history more widely known than the death of Christ on the cross. 
So why has God wanted it to be public? Well, a quick answer that we might give would be, well, God wants the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. as a testimony of the, all the nations, like Matthew 24 says. And that's true. But that's not the reason given here. The reason given here is that Jesus' death is the public vindication of the upright character of God. What, is, what does that mean? Well, consider the next phrase here in verse 25. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. L let me use the most striking example I can think of. David, from the Old Testament, was forgiven of all of his sins. And that includes his worst. His sin of adultery and the arranging of Uriah's death in battle. Friends, if sin deserves death, David deserved capital punishment on earth and the wrath of God in the age to come. But when David turned, he was forgiven. When he trusted in the Lord, God spoke to him and said, your sins are forgiven. But make sure this sinks in the audacity of all of that. Imagine being Uriah's mother and you hear all this. While your boy was at war, defending the nation and even serving the king, the king slept with his wife, your daughter-in-law, got her pregnant and then killed your son. And then after all that, he went and got married to her. And now God says that David is forgiven. If you're Uriah's mother, what is some of what you're thinking in your heart? Where's the justice in that? That's not right. How can this be fair? See, friends, if God pardons criminals, doesn't that make him like the unrighteous judges of the earth? This is the dilemma that is posed to us in Scripture numerous times. How can God be upright and yet pardon sin? Forgiveness is actually scandalous. Forgiveness of sins is an actually very audacious thing if there were no propitiation. But if we cry out, where is the justice in this? The answer from heaven that rings out is justice has been accomplished. Justice has been satisfied. The wrath of Almighty God unleashed its arrow of judgment, but Jesus has stepped in and taken the arrow into himself and taken the arrows of all of those who will turn to Christ. And this same mercy was available to Uriah's mother. God offers this, justice is accomplished, and yet sinners can be pardoned. This is how God can be righteous while forgiving and cleansing sin, because justice has happened. And listen to me, friends, the Old Testament believers were saved by faith, but here is also what this passage is showing. The Old Testament believers were saved by Jesus. They just didn't know that they were. Abraham was justified by faith. We could say, well, how does that work, though, if there had been no sacrifice for sins? Were the lambs and goats that Abraham offered, were they enough? Look, Hebrews says, no, they were only a picture and a shadow. There are not enough lambs and goats in the universe to pay for your salvation. So how is Abraham justified? The answer is on credit, based on a work that would come in the future. 
David was forgiven of his sins by Jesus based on a work that would come in the future. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith and saved by Jesus. And the New Testament believers are saved by faith and saved by Jesus. And Jesus's public crucifixion is before the angels and men, a vindication of the righteousness of God. And on that note, that helps us understand verse 26. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a connection in the original language that we don't see in English. The Greek word for just used here is actually the same word as righteous. In English, we kind of make a great big distinction between just and righteous. In the original, those two words are often used um, in the same kind of thing there. We'll talk more about it next Sunday, but for now, just note it. So another way to say this phrase though, some of your translations might even word it like this. God is righteous and the righteous sapphire. But we don't have an English word called righteous sapphire or to be righteousified. So we have the word justified. God is righteous and the one who makes righteous. God is just and the one who makes others to be just with him. God is the one who rescues. So you, you have to see this. God wants you to know that he has not violated what is upright in order to forgive sins and sinners. God did not become unrighteous. A judge who just winks at sin and says, we're gonna pretend like this didn't happen, that is violating righteous. God has not violated righteousness and yet designed a way for sins to be forgiven. But here's the point. And here's why it's stated like it is. Who does all this? And who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Who ought to have the songs sung about them? Is it us? The sinners? The sinner who was born in rebellion? Lived in resistance to God? Rejected God? Walked in a way that was heading to hell at one time? But by a miracle of sovereign grace, God came to us? God opened our eyes. God pointed us the direction. God provided the propitiation. And then even if God had provided all that was necessary in Jesus's death on the cross, if God had not also provided for the Holy Spirit to come and awaken us, draw us, cast light and show us we would, there would never have been a single soul saved in history. God not only had to provide the way of salvation, God also had to come personally and call us by name, like, like a man begging alms, but who is so weak he can't even lift his arms. So God lifts his arms for him. Do we deserve the song sung about us? God gives the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. The sinner is dependent on God for every millisecond of our breath. God is the one who saves us. And then when it's all said and done, we learn that all of this was predestined before a, a single molecule of the universe was formed. So who deserves the songs of worship? Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? It ain't us. That's why we have this statement to God alone be the glory. Why the Bible will say unto him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And that leads us to understand verse 27, where then is boasting? You who are in Christ, Christian, what do you have that you have not received? What, what can you glory in and say, I know God did a lot, but this is my part. This is mine. This glory, it's the one part that I get. You have no place. Even the very faith that was necessary, we're shown we need the help of God even to express. Christian, you do not have an inch of foothold to claim glory. And when all is said and done on the day of judgment, we will understand it and see it all. That not only did God provide the way of salvation, God is the one who called you and drew you by name. And verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is just clarified there, lest there be any misunderstanding. But as you know, there is still a great deal of resistance to what the Bible says here, but the Bible makes it just so clear. So what do we say at the end of all of that? Well, Christian, I hope your heart says a great hearty amen to God alone be the glory. What application do we take from this? Well, the Bible actually says that this is the starting point for every command in the whole Bible. So the application today, go do all of it. But as a starting point, let go and get rid of every single molecule of credit you have taken, every single ounce of pride that you have taken thinking you are better than someone else. The Christian ought to be the most humble soul in existence, overwhelmed by the grace that has come to us. But if you are here and you have not yet passed through that narrow gate, not yet come to Christ to be justified. Maybe even like those two in Pilgrim's Progress who have kind of chuckled at the idea, thinking that so long as you jump in the path somewhere, do the church thing, do the Christianish life somewhere, that surely we'll all be fine in the end. What I, what I beg, what I appeal to you is to see. Christ calls you to come to him, knowing you must be saved, looking to him, and crying out and asking him to be saved. You must pass through that narrow gate. You must be justified. There must be a recognition on your part of your sin, your guilt, and your need. If you've not done that, if you're resisting, I, I, I just beg you to start with this one thing and identify the reason why. Why are you resisting? Is it that you don't believe the Bible really teaches this? Well, I, I, I just beg you, read the book of John this afternoon. It'll take about 45 minutes. You'll see over and over again Jesus preach these things. Is it, is it a pride? Is it a pride that's just unwilling to admit that I'm so guilty that I need this kind of thing? Don't let your pride keep you from eternal life. Like Jesus said in Mark 9 that we read, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. If your eye makes you stumble, cut it out. If your pride is making you stumble, cut it out. Or is it that there's a kind of academic approach to all of this? Because I will tell you, the academic groups within the name of Christianity, they mock this. Oh, those silly, those silly hick Christians who think that you got to actually be saved. We know, we know. Everybody's okay in the end. Is it an academic thing? I just beg you, look at the scriptures. 
Does the Bible actually say this? If there is, then don't let anything keep you from coming to Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, to you alone be the glory forever and ever. We will sing of your greatness throughout eternity. And when we have worshiped you for 10 billion lifetimes, we will still have not offered up the glory that you are worthy of. Father, I pray that we who have trusted in Christ will live lives of gratitude flowing out of this. But I pray for any in the room, O oh God, that have still not called out to you. Please, God, impress upon them the weight and the necessity. Make them to feel the desperation they are in that they will trust in Christ. We love you, Lord. And we pray and ask your blessing as we leave and ask all this in Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled Justified. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.